US policy landscape is shifting day by day, there's M&A and investment galore, and Europe's power prices are spiking across the board. It's September 2021, and this is the Solar Media Podcast. Hello and welcome to this new episode of the Solar Media Podcast. It's September 2021. Andy, how are you? Pretty good, thanks. Pretty good, Liam. How are you doing? Yeah, very good. Very good. Can't complain. Um, it has been phenomenally busy across the news desk at Solar Media this week, isn't it? It really has. It really has. Uh, before we dive into that, uh, I just wanted to bring up two things uh, that may or may not be interesting to readers, I suppose. Go on. Uh, yeah, we're just looking at the, the UK and we were just talking about this before we came on, but... There's two things that have happened in the UK that uh, you know struck me as being kind of strange happening at the same time. And number one is that Sir Clive Sinclair, uh, the popularizer yes. of uh, home computing for many people, uh, the inventor of the pocket calculator, which I didn't even realize until I saw that uh, in some of his obituaries today, and the inventor also of a proto sort of electric mass market electric car. Uh, called the Sing- C5. C5, yeah, exactly, uh, passed away. And, you know, I think what's really interesting is that over the last few years, you know, everything we've looked at with our clean energy eyes, uh, goggles on, I guess, uh, is that, you know, for, for the technology that we're talking about to work, it has to be scalable, it has to be simple, and it has to be uh, low cost, you know, ever while becoming much more digital and smarter. And that's kind of exactly what, uh, so Clive Sinclair was all about. So I just think, yeah, it's just a, a little bit, not, not someone that had a huge amount of bearing on my life. Uh, although, you know, my dad's a computer programmer and so it was always a, a big thing for him. So just a little bit sad and uh, to see that visionary. But also on the Sinclair C5, I've seen a lot of people going, it was an idea too early for its time. I don't think that's that accurate because uh, for anyone who's not aware uh, it was a very neat little electric car, but when I say little, it's basically what five centimeters off the ground. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and, and so yeah, so driving that on roads was never going to pan out. But you know, fair play to him for trying to think of something that that you know would have would have revolutionized things. And you know, as we know, the electric car has a long way to go um, still. So. Yeah, that was interesting. So a guy who was really progressive in terms of the technology, uh, but then also, and I guess this is far less important, we've just seen that the UK is reverting to imperial measurements, or not reverting to, but kind of, well, what is the deal with that? Oh, I, don't, I, I, I don't know. Um, I did, there was a, when, when this was kind of first banded around in the press earlier on in the week, um, someone showed a map of the world of countries which use metric and then countries which use uh imperial and then there's like the only country in the world that flips between the two but gets really shouty at at countries which use either or and it was just the uk there's like this bastion of uncertainty in measurements it's just nuts absolutely nuts i mean the thing for me is that you know we're we're hosting cop 26 (laughs) in a few weeks um there are some other quite big important things happening in the world i think it's fair to say and you know, anytime we record this podcast, whenever you guys are out there listening to it, that's always going to be the case. And yet the government thinks that the thing that will appease their voter base the most is to allow uh, the sale of fruit and vegetables in uh, in inches. You don't sell fruit in inches, but you, you get my drift there. I don't even know what imperial uh, weight measurements are, to be honest with you, apart from pounds, I guess, and whatever. Pounds um, ounces. Unless you, yeah. you you can't have ever been to a fruit and veg market, Andy. I'm struggling to think. Of that. <laughs> I'll be honest. Anyway, yeah, it, I, yeah. it 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 really is just a matter of of priorities. And whereas the British government have arguably got their priorities in the wrong order, um, one well country which does seem to be shifting priorities towards something a lot more important is the US if the last fortnight or so uh, is evidence of anything Andy yeah I mean I know that you've 
you've described it as a, a bit of an avalanche of policy um, in the US shifting gear on, on clean energy. So uh, I've, I've seen a little bit of it, but I don't think as much as you have. So yeah, what's the, uh, what's the deal there? It's, it's kind of been breakneck speed since, uh, since the US had Labor Day, really. So they had obviously Labor Day at the start of the month. And then since then, there's just been uh, a constant push on specific policies and um, other kind of pieces of uh, le- uh, legislation or regulation which, which are looking to really shape the the big solar, well, solar and energy storage, really, over the next 10 years at least. I mean, the, the kind of central piece to that is this investment tax credit extension, which we've been... Um, really on top of ever since Biden came into power. It was obviously a central cog of his climate policy um, during the election campaign at the end of last year. So for us to have, well, nine months on from his um, inauguration to finally have the details of this and to have uh, the the bulk of the policy outlined in, in the Ways and Means Committee's markup of the budget reconciliation this week um, has been illuminating and quite actually quite um directive of the of where the um, Biden administration wants solar and storage to go um obviously we've started to see not just the solar itc but there is now a standalone energy storage itc which pretty much um same kind of policy so 30 percent itc um for both solar and energy storage technologies providing that you meet uh, or that you meet certain criteria surrounding prevailing wage um, and apprenticeship um, requirements. It's going to be quite interesting to see what the development community makes of those prevailing wage and um, apprenticeship requirements. It's obviously going to shift the cost of labour up um, for solar and energy storage projects, but I don't think it's going to be too laborious uh, for them to meet, if you can excuse the pun there. But um, it's certainly a really interesting and really pivotal guide for the industry. Um, one of the things I think is going to be really interesting, particularly for solar projects, is whether developers go for the ITC, which is obviously a tax credit on um, the materials and components used in the project, or whether they plump for the production tax credit, um, which is... Um, obviously slightly different in the sense that it's going to be um it's being revived for solar technologies first and foremost but it's going to be um offer a payment and and again there are conditions for prevailing wage and apprenticeships to get the bonus credit amount but it's a um it's a payment of two and a half cents per kilowatt hour for the first 10 years of a project's lifespan so it's very similar to a kind of subsidy framework which you've seen elsewhere i've seen this described by some in the industry as being an extremely rich payment there's also an added uh 10 bonus on this is if, if you use domestic content in, in in the project so if you use 55 percent domestic content um you can get an extra 10 percent, which takes up to 2.75 cents per kilowatt hour that is if you i mean if you only have to look at the kind of tender prices which you've seen in other nations if you're developing a pretty sizable, low-cost project in the US to get to more than two and a half cents per kilowatt hour for the first ten years of your project, that's pretty lucrative. Right, and I mean, I think it's worth noting on the so the production tax credit currently doesn't apply for solar, but does apply for wind, um, unless I'm yeah. not mistaken. And then I think the other thing to note for anyone. I guess outside the US, because most in the US might be familiar. But the, so when we say thirty percent tax credit, that's not thirty percent off the rate of tax, but it's actually thirty percent worth thirty percent of the cost of the equipment, as as far as yeah. I'm aware. Yeah. So I mean, this domestic content thing sounds big because I mean that could take you know forty percent off the cost of this uh, equipment uh, potentially overnight. But I mean, how much domestic content? is actually getting produced. And I, I think this feeds back into the, the discussion we were having last time out, uh, you know, regarding the uh, the import tariffs that are going on. Or um, I don't know if I'm conflating some of the issues here, but, yeah, I mean, how likely is it that people will be able to capture that domestic content thing? Do, do we have an idea of that yet? It, it, it's quite interesting 
because you have this kind of big domestic content push at the same time that you have um, other issues such as a potential extension of the Section 201 tariffs, that those are due to expire next February. Um, if they were to be extended, they would. Uh, there's a pro, there's a due process of um, the um, U.S. authorities would have to start an investigation into that. Um, it would be um, likely that the the investigation would be put forward with recommended proposals for the Biden administration um, towards the end of this year, early next year, and then the Biden administration would have to make a decision either way. From what we've heard and what we've kind of um, been told speaking to our kind of authorities in the US and people that are kind of farmer at the cutting edge of things on Capitol Hill than we are, um, there is every expectation that the 201 tariffs will be extended. There would have to be a kind of major, major push um, from US domestic manufacturers, which just isn't there. Equally, you have this petition which has been launched by um, a coalition of American solar manufacturers, which have steadfastly remained anonymous and have clearly no plans to uh, stick their heads above the pulpit here. <clears throat> but that petition is filing against certain subsidiaries of major module manufacturers based in Malaysia, Thailand, and Vietnam. They allege that... Um, these companies or these subsidiaries are circumventing the anti-dumping and countervailing duties from uh, from 2012 um, and they want those subsidiaries targeted with similar tariffs. Um, from what we've heard from various webinars that, that other uh, parties like Roth Capital have put on um, and indeed to be like listening to um, the, the legal representatives of this coalition, which is um, a law firm Wiley Ryan, Wiley Ryan will be familiar, a familiar name to many in the solar industry. They have um, been involved in not just the original solar one tariffs, but also Section 201. They don't take on cases which they don't think that they can win bold accounts. And this is the, the summation is that this is essentially a, a fairly slam dunk, cut and, cut and dry case. Um, the, the gist of it here is really, really interesting because. The petition calls on the Department of Commerce to launch an investigation into circumvention. That investigation is widely expected to start, if not towards the end of September, early October. There's unlikely to be the kind of political manoeuvring around and on this investigation than there is the Section 201 and, and other parts of the policy um, infrastructure. This is very, very cut and dry is it's a legal case legal interpretation with evidence that has been submitted to the department of commerce whilst that investigation could take some time it will come into the the tariffs or any resulting tariffs um applied to these specific companies importing modules to the us so sales and modules rather um they would be applied retroactively from the day the investigation was started so that the kind of that is widely expected to be around the 1st of October. Um, there are, it's unlikely that either side of the transactions, so that's developers and manufacturers, are unlikely to take on the risk of procuring or importing modules to the US if it's likely that tariffs, and it's worth noting here that the tariffs for the solar on tariffs are at 95%, it's unlikely they're going to take on that risk of importing. So you could see something like 80% of the module market almost withdraw overnight. So there's going to be a real shortening or certainly um, difficulty in supplying um, modules. I say I, I, I'm trying to avoid the word shortness because I don't like there is an inference being that there will be enough modules certainly to case for the us market given what we expect demand to be next year it's just going to be it's going to completely change the dynamic overnight there's going to be a few of their kind of household names which are going to find that if the um, investigation ends up being launched and if it looks as clear a cut as certain parties are making out it's, it's going to change the module supply in the us 
um, fairly, fairly drastically. Right. So at the same time, you have this kind of dichotomy between the Biden administration really, really driving soda deployment with the ITC and the PTC whilst having this quite um, disruptive legislation playing out elsewhere. So it, it, this balancing act is going to be really crucial for the administration to kind of get a hold of. Right. And this is without even, is, am I right in thinking this is without even looking at the Xinjiang polysilicon situation that we were talking about as well? Or is, does that come yeah. in this whole thing? No, exactly. It's, it's, it's entirely separate. Um, so I was, I was, um, there was a, um, forgive me, I can't remember who was saying it on, on, on the rough web, on the rough webinar, which was, um, earlier this week, but it was really interesting to, to hear them say that, or remark that it's, it's really, really un, unfortunate for soda to be an industry, which finds itself with so many interweaving policy machinations at any one time. And it's just, it's, it's unlike any other sector to have kind of fought, found itself in this situation because you're going to have importers that have just don't know the lay of the land day to day. Right. Okay. And at the, at the same time, I understand the department of energy in the U S uh, wants to see solar get to 40% of power. Is it power generation or power demand uh, in the U S by 2035, which is, you know, in power sector terms, that's just around the corner, isn't it? Well, exactly. I mean, you've, you've got, um, this was from the um, Soda Futures study, which the Department of Energy released earlier this month. Um, it was produced by um, the US National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Uh-huh. Um, that very much pointed out, it is plausible for solar to provide 40% of the US power demand by 2035, but it would need install, annual installs to get up to something like 60 gigawatts by the end of the decade. So bearing in mind that the US installed something like 15 gigawatts last year, you're looking at a quadrupling of annual solar installs within the next decade. So that's kind of, and kind of that kind of midterm of 2025, we're gonna start to need to see an average of 30 gigawatts installed each year. So doubling within the next four years, quadrupling within the next decade. Is there going to be enough module supply in the US if they have ADCVD tariffs, Section 201, and the enforcement of the withhold release order on certain um, facets of the policy and supply chain? It is an almighty balancing act to get to those kind of deployment figures whilst addressing the supply chain. There's obviously this big... um, SEMA bill, which is the Solar Energy Manufacturing Act, which is proposed by um, Georgian uh, Democrat Senator John Ossoff. That is going to be highly, highly crucial in providing um, incentives per unit of uh, manufacturer for solar. So you're looking at, there, there are different tariffs set for, sorry, different incentives set for um, polysilicon wafering cell and module. So it holds the potential to really stimulate a lot of um, deployment in the US solar sector of manufacturing um, capacity. Is it going to be enough? We don't know. Is it even going to survive the... uh, It's it's worth noting here that this bill isn't yet part of the Budget Reconciliation Act. Um, It would have to be pushed through the Senate. Um, Is that going to be... uh, is it going to garner enough favour with, with the Republicans? It's, it's difficult to say. There's just so much going on. Um, and that's even without, that, that's just the kind of federal policy envelope without even going into what's happening at the state level, which as we've seen and as we've documented in the most recent issue of um, People Tech Power is just as important, if not more so. Right. I mean, it's uh, it does get to a certain level with all this legislation that, you just wonder as and when, you know, things are actually going to really happen because as you just mentioned, the budget reconciliation, that's where the ITC wasn't able to be included in the infrastructure bill that we thought was going to be transformative. That was, uh, you know, supposed to be going through, uh, supposed to have gone through already, really, I guess, uh, still hasn't done. 
um, but did commit, you know, something like seventy billion dollars towards the the grid and power sector. Uh, and then you've got the budget reconciliation, as you say. Um, yeah, I mean, it's clearly a lot of ambition there within the US to to follow up on on this. You know, not just on the renewable energy uh, goals and climate targets that they've got, but also the tremendous success that the renewable energy industry has had um, over the last few years. You know, and why why put that to waste really when you could just keep keep going and and scale it up but obviously a lot of these things need resolving but as i think as you just mentioned the state level policy is getting really interesting and not just policy but also state level markets you know i think uh one thing that we wrote about uh last week or just towards the end of last week uh was that illinois has introduced a 100 percent clean energy by 2050 uh target uh, which is phenomenally interesting because, you know, Illinois is one of the Midwestern U.S. states that is very largely dependent on coal or has been historically. Um, and that's not just in its power generation, but also in its economy. You know, a lot of people employed uh, within the coal industry. And so for Illinois to come out with um, something like this, which has been worked on for some time, uh, I think it's uh, phenomenally interesting and, you know, it kind of follows up what we've seen in the southeast um, in Virginia uh, becoming, you know, again, a, a coal, largely coal based economy uh, that has transitioned towards um, a clean energy future, really. So, yeah, so, sorry. So I said 2050, it's actually 2045. So carbon, 100 percent carbon free electricity in Illinois by 2045 and 50% renewables by 2040, you know. And uh, one thing that's really interesting in within that is that there is a specific coal to solar and storage initiative, uh, which is basically making $280.5 million uh, available to energy storage projects which are being installed at retiring coal plant sites. So Illinois wants to retire all of its uh, coal plants by 2030. Um and uh, yeah, sorry, I just as I was saying that, I just remembered one thing that we didn't put on the agenda is completely on the other side of the world. Um, but have you seen uh, this coal keeper policy initiative in Australia? I've seen bits of it. Um, I have to admit, it had, I've been so kind of bogged down with the US yeah. kind of stuff the last few weeks. I haven't, I've, I've seen it mentioned, but I'm not sure of the kind of inner workings of it. I mean, it just looks like such a horror show that I've not really been prepared <laughs> to look into it so much. But you know, anyway, Australian authorities and climate horror show. I won't have it. But you know, I mean, I think that's the the interesting thing is that Australia again is a is an example where state levels, the Australian states, uh, pretty much all of them are very committed towards again not only the climate targets but also mm. into supporting their their clean energy industries. You know, and the um, the uh, premier of uh, Victoria. Um, and is it Anastasia Palaszczuk? I oh, I'm not sure you got me now. Oh, I'm not sure. forgive, me, forgive me. I'm going to look that up in a minute because I'm going to look really silly. <laughs> otherwise, uh, basically, just came out and said so. Coalkeeper is basically, um, you know, a Morrison government-led initiative to pay subsidies to fossil fuel plants to keep them open. Oh, it's incredible. Uh, they're getting hammered in the um, in the in the. Uh, economic competition by renewables um and coal even by by gas you know around the world yeah uh so yeah so this is that's just pretty ridiculous really so yeah so i think illinois uh shows what kind of ambitions can be done because i think if if we're being sensible these these states have to realize that they can't they can't rely on that coal forever like there's so many health health problems that come from it it's uneconomical so um Power generation company Vistra Energy uh, operates nine coal plants in Illinois, uh, owns and operates nine coal plants in Illinois. And it has said um, that mainly for economic reasons, it wants to retire the last of its coal plants by 2027, uh, but has long advocated for something like the coal to solar and storage initiative uh, for Illinois to, you know, to, to give help not just to Vistra Energy, uh, obviously, they're a business, and you know they they want something out of it, I guess. But 
also to help those communities to kind of see a way past um, that, you know, into that energy transition, really, I guess, because, you know, if local opposition is something that can really uh, put the brakes on various kinds of power sector, you know, investments, as we've seen. And so, yeah, so Vistra Energy, uh, retiring last of its coal plants by 2027, has said it will deploy six utility-scale solar plus storage plants and three standalone battery energy storage plants at coal plant sites that have already retired um, or are retiring. So, yeah, that's pretty exciting. And just today there was uh, news breaking that Dominion Energy, which is one of the main uh, utilities uh, operating in Virginia, um, has put forward a pretty ambitious about a gigawatt of uh, solar uh, with storage uh, projects that it will be doing there as well. So, yeah, as you say, uh, state-level policy is, is a really exciting thing. But, yeah, let's hope they can get all the equipment uh, that they need to uh, to actually go through with those projects, I guess. Yeah, and just to go back to your point around um, the kind of all of the health benefits alongside um, this decarbonisation and taking as much coal out of the power system as possible, there was a really, really interesting note, which um, was in the future solar studies um, published by the DOE. Uh, it kind of got swept along by all of the big um, the big numbers around solar generation. Mm-hmm. There's a, there was a specific note um, that we, basically the study itself has three different scenarios, which is the, the kind of business as usual base case, and then um, decarbonisation model, and then a decarbonisation plus broader electrification, which looked at the potential for uh, the broader electrification of harder to abate sectors, so transport, heavy industry, that kind of stuff, and then that 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 really did look into the role that solar and other renewables can play in, I say, essentially hydrogen, green hydrogen will be a big part of that kind of heavy industry and transport. So it was kind of built around that. Um, the two more uh, ambitious decarbonisation models that were included within the study um, were between 520, 200, sorry, 250 and $560 million more expensive, a billion dollars, sorry, more expensive. Um, which again, big numbers that are eye-catching in themselves, but the health benefits regarding cleaner air and the cost benefits for solar over coal meant that even if you went for the taller end of $560 billion, the savings on that were between $1.1 and $1.7 trillion. So for every essentially, for every dollar that you spend, on decarbonizing, uh, decarbonizing the power sector, you get $3 back in terms of benefits and, and savings. So it's incredible that you can have that kind of policy and those, those kind of statistics play out and be um, brought to the center on one side of the world and then the other side of the world, you have something like Coalkeeper come forward. I mean, it's unbelievable, isn't it? Because, yeah, that's, I mean, that's always been the problem in, you know, what we call externalities that, you know, the the carbon cost, um, and obviously people are working really hard to get some kind of, you know, some kind of frameworks in for for figuring out the carbon cost, but the carbon costs and the health costs, they're not linked to the costs that, you know, have to be paid. The polluter doesn't pay. So, whereas with something like, say, for example, smoking, um, people were able to draw a line after years and so much uh, evidence that smoking is bad for you. It being bad for you costs everybody in the long run in terms of, you know, health. Uh, And, you know, a line was able to be drawn there, but it's not really the same, unfortunately, Mm. with the power sector. And just one last interesting point on the, as I was saying about Illinois and the Midwest in, in general, um, you know, something that was said to me by someone who is looking to target um, energy storage projects in the uh, Midwest, inter- uh, sorry, the Mid-Continent uh, Independent System Operator Region, MISO. Um, yeah, basically that spans 15 US states, um, including Illinois, Arkansas, Indiana, Iowa. I'm not going to do the whole list, but yeah, so basically a lot <laughs> large swathe of the Midwest of the US and the, the Canadian province of Manitoba. Um, those co- those com- So what I'm saying is that economics do always come into these equations, you know, and we can't forget that because whereas 
other parts of the US are slower on their energy transition that aren't on coal. The point is that they are places like Pennsylvania and Ohio, get that out there finally, um, set on um, shale gas and you know other, other cheap sources of natural gas. That isn't the case in MISO. So MISO has basically got coal that's being beaten on uh, economics uh, by renewables. So although it's still a painful transition, obviously, in terms of the culture and the economies of those, those places, uh, that there's a real opportunity for for energy storage and and for renewables, really. Definitely, definitely. Well, with all of that kind of discussed and and, and out of the way, we're we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we've got so much more to go over. So you can see us after this break. PV Tech has been the world's leading source of solar news and opinion for more than a decade. But now, PV Tech Premium goes one stop further giving you business critical insights developed to empower decision making throughout the solar value chain. For just $249 per year, you can receive exclusive insights, analysis and interviews, while also accessing our comprehensive back catalogue of technical papers and a host of other benefits. Head on over to PV Tech to find out more. And welcome back to the September 21 episode of the Solar Media Podcast. It's me, Liam Stoker. Joining me, as ever, is Andy Colthorpe. Andy, we spent the first half on a bit of a deep dive on the kind of policy regulation landscape, which we've seen it really accelerate in the last fortnight or so. But it's a similar kind of pace of change in the kind of M&A and investment scape, isn't it? It's been unbelievable, you know. I was just doing some sums and... Uh, just four companies in the energy storage space, both downstream and upstream, uh, between them netted or announced anyway investments of about half a billion dollars uh, just in the last month. Uh, and there's been some big acquisitions as well, of course. Yeah, I mean, probably the most eye-catching for those familiar or, or kind of have been in the energy storage space for a long time, probably um, the NECES acquisition. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So, you know, all the way back in June last year, uh, we were talking about what a surprise and in some ways shock it was that NEC Energy Solution or NECES um, basically was exiting the industry despite being one of its leaders. Now, others have since broken the one gigawatt mark of installs now, um, but it wasn't... um, you know, NECES was on 958 megawatts, I think, when it said uh, that it would stop acquiring or, sorry, would stop seeking out new projects uh, and would maintain an office presence and engineers and whatnot, uh, basically just to service the, for long-term service for the projects that it already had in the ground. So NEC Corporation, obviously, you know, old Japanese company, um, very well known within the IT and, uh, and electrical equipment sectors um, but the NECES subsidiary uh, was based in Massachusetts and uh, well I guess I, I don't need to do the history lesson on it but yeah they were they were formed um, through the acquisition of a uh, very well-known startup called A123 Energy Solutions in 2014 right. and then you know there's a whole rabbit hole on on the interesting story behind that but yeah I'll, I'll leave the readers to go through and have a look for it. So yeah, sorry, I got that figure wrong earlier. It was on 986 megawatts of battery storage uh, when it went out of business. Um, it has now, at the time it went out of business, uh, it was said that there was an acquisition very close to happening, uh, but that it fell through partly because you know the COVID pandemic was just really sort of getting into its stride, for want of a better expression. Um, and, you know, people weren't really making those investment decisions. People weren't having meetings and stuff. Anyway, LG Energy Solution, uh, which is, you know, the what was called LG Chem uh, until fairly recently, the battery and battery storage manufacturer has, uh, yeah, basically completed a deal to acquire NECES. And, uh, yeah, NECES, as I say, is based in Massachusetts. So, I think a big part of this acquisition is to give energy uh, LG uh, access, you know, wider access to the US market, um, as well as to NEC ES's uh, controls platform and software called Eros, uh, which, right. you know, by, by many accounts was one of the more advanced 
uh, software suites that was out there. So, yeah, so that was really interesting. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot more on that to come. But also um, within the last few weeks, a developer called Key Capture Energy, um, who I think we've spoken about, is quite becoming quite prolific. Again, they're fairly they're a fairly young company, um, about five years old, becoming very prolific in deploying systems in uh, New York, in Texas, uh, and I believe they are basically also going for that MISO region that we were talking about in part one there. And uh, yeah, they've been bought by another uh, Korean, basically by another Korean battery and battery storage company, uh, SKENS. Um, so. Unlike the LG, so this is yeah, obviously a bit different because Key Capture Energy is a developer, owner, and operator of energy storage projects. So this is a more downstream deal. And SKENS is kind of more the downstream energy solutions arm of SK Group. So SK Group right. is a huge Korean conglomerate, uh, which includes SK Innovation, uh, which is, I'm sorry about all the names being thrown out here, everyone, but yeah, um, SK Innovation is a, is more the battery manufacturer um, and they're building two gigafactories in uh, Georgia in the US right now. Um, and SKNS is, you know, a different part of that SK group uh, has just bought uh, Key Capture Energy uh, in a deal that's valued Key Capture at uh, over a billion dollars, I believe. So, yeah, so... Could they be the first unicorn uh, developer? So unicorn being a startup worth a billion dollars. Um, oh, I hate that term. Well, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> if, 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 if it's a term which is broadly used, then it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't like it when it's used but not explained. Yeah. <laughs> and I just imagine what would someone who's coming into this for the first time think? Wow, they're turning into a unicorn. Great. Who's yeah, brilliant. smoking what today? Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so anyway, Key Capture Energy, uh, sorry, SKNS anticipates, I should get my, my wording right on this, anticipates investing a billion US dollars into Key Capture Energy. Um, so yeah, so that's really interesting. And SKNS operates around 700 megawatt hours of energy storage so far. Um, Key Capture Energy, uh, you know what, there's a load of stats on them, but they're hoping to have a gigawatt online by 2023. Uh, we've written about them quite a lot. And, you know, I think one of the recent really interesting interviews I did was with Key Capture's CEO, Jeff Bishop, uh, and his colleague, Taylor Qualls. And Taylor's their director for their New York activities. Uh, so some really interesting stuff on those. And I think in the interest of brevity, I'm going to point people in the direction of looking at those uh, on the website. But just to say, watch this space, because, you know, I think it's a, a really exciting time. Uh, to be in there. And sorry, just one final acquisition story within energy storage that's a little bit different uh, is that Briggs & Stratton, which is a large US manufacturer of, well, various things, but they also manufacture kind of petrol engine and petrol engine based um, goods, I guess you could say. So they make things like lawnmowers, uh, you know, that run on petrol. Uh, sorry, petrol being gasoline for anyone in the US. <laughs> And uh, they, yeah, so they also um, do generator sets and they've bought Simplify Power, uh, who are a, a company in California who make uh, distributed residential, portable and commercial uh, battery storage based on lithium ion phosphate technology. Really interesting company in that they were kind of, uh, they were spun out of providing power solutions for movie sets. That's actually how they got about. Um, such, a, such, a, such an odd niche. I know, yeah, it's quite cool, isn't it? Yeah, so yeah, there's apparently they list on their website some of the films where you can see some of their equipment used to, <laughs> to power the set, which I thought was really interesting. Um, but yeah, so they've just been snapped up by Briggs and Stratton, and that kind of shows a more conventional sort of, you know, uh, not even an energy sector group really, but yeah, a power equipment group, I guess, uh, buying right. into this, seeing the the potential in the market for. Uh, backup power uh, and for you know renewable energy integration um, at the home level so that's that's been really interesting but I gather there's been quite a lot going on in solar as well right yeah I mean it, it's a very similar story um, I'd just to rattle off a few of the kind of big, bigger certainly at, like in terms of M&A or investment or other kind of activities so we've had 
in recent months. Um, EQT Partners acquire Cypress Creek Renewables, so they obviously bought with them a fairly sizable um, US-based renewables portfolio. Um, Capital Dynamics has spun out um, its development arm, Aravon Energy, which again is more to target um, a, a broader portfolio of solar and storage projects in the US. Um, had a um, really, really interesting um, catch up with the Aravon CEO, um, who is just bring up his name now because his name is completely gone from me, John Breckenridge. That's it. Um, who spoke to us about the need, the, the, how the spin out would allow them to really concentrate on delivering this kind of operational excellence, um, which I thought was a really, really interesting uh, element of that deal. Um, there's also been a slew of uh, kind of smaller acquisitions in the US, um, certainly in the residential space as well. So obviously we had the big one last year of Sunrun acquiring Vivint, um, their head and shoulders above most of the um, residential market so far, but companies like iSun um, have snapped up other smaller players. So you have this amalgamation of smaller residential installers from different geographical regions, which are coming together, which is quite an interesting dynamic. Um, there's a host of kind of UK-based solar investors which are racking up quite significant amounts of capital to deploy into solar investments, not just in the UK, but across Europe. So we've had um, Next Energy Capital start to invest in projects in Portugal and Spain. Uh, likewise, um, Foresight continue to build their portfolio in, in Europe and um, uh, Australia. I think one of their funds has just acquired a project in um, in Poland as well. So clearly those investments are racking up pace across the world. And um, it's quite an interesting time for what's happening in Europe alongside broader uh, activity in kind of tender markets and, and auctions, which are coming to the fore, which is, uh, um, I know you've done a lot of work uh, recently, Andy, looking at the um, Germany innovation tenders and how solar and storage projects are faring there. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, to be honest, I think Germany's renewables industry is in a bit of trouble, really, isn't it, overall? Like, uh, we just keep hearing how the retirement of nuclear has made Germany more and more dependent on coal. Uh, governments, successive governments have set caps on the amount of solar that can be installed. Mm. Um, there's a lot of, uh, um, what's the word? There's a lot of... Uh, unhappiness really I guess in the energy storage industry about various regulations and regulatory barriers uh, to energy storage that are in Germany but uh, a bright definitely a bright uh, spot has been the solar and storage sorry rather what's called the innovation tenders as you say uh, in Germany so there's been three rounds of them and the idea is to pay uh, basically to award contracts for renewable energy projects or clean energy projects that use at least two different technologies at the same site. Um, and people have basically gone for solar and storage uh, with every single bid that's gone into that. So the most recent one was undersubscribed. It was a 250 megawatt tender. It was A, unsubscribed, uh, undersubscribed rather, and also there were some um, mistakes made in some of the bids, so they didn't get through and they weren't awarded anything. Uh, but in the end, I think 156 megawatts uh, of projects were awarded. Um, and, you know, so I was talking to the managing director of the German Energy Storage Association, uh, Urban uh, Vindelin, uh, who said that basically the tenders demonstrate just how important uh, energy storage is to the energy transition uh, in Germany. And so, you know, these tenders, basically the projects that are built will receive their, so it's not like a feed-in tariff or, a, you know, a CFD or the more traditional ways of paying um, incentives from the government for renewable energy projects. Uh, basically, these projects will earn what they can on at the market, you know, based on market value. Uh, but then also they will be given a certain amount of um, 
what's called a fixed market premium on top of that. Um, so yeah, so this should it should be really interesting to see if that you know if these projects are kind of successful enough that we can see some kind of uh, you know some kind of overall uptick uh, within the industry. Um, I mean, one of the big winners in that was RWE. Uh, so it will be building it bid with two projects um, that are each about so roughly 15 megawatts of PV uh, and about 10 megawatt hours of battery storage. Um, at least one of them is going to be on the site of a coal mine, uh, which is quite oh. interesting. Yeah, and they're also developing a large solar and storage project uh, on a lignite mine. So lignite is kind of the dirtiest form of sort of coal, dirtiest. Coal plus. Coal or minus, really, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it will, yeah, they, they, they found with one of their lignite mines, because they're such big sites, because it's open cast, like it's not sure. deep underground, um, there's potential to put like 250 megawatts of battery, uh, sorry, of, uh, of renewable energy of solar, really, uh, on that site. Or, well, sorry, not just solar, but yeah, renewable energy. They the uh, their spokesman wasn't specific on that, and uh, to be honest, they didn't have time to press on it. But you know, it's, it's really interesting, I think. So, yeah, let's hope and see uh, what happens there. Um, I mean, also in Europe, we've seen that. So coming up, we've got a and sorry to do a quick plug here, uh, but we've got a webinar with our friends at Clean Horizon. So that's the consultancy on uh well so they're a pure energy storage consultancy and they do both sort of market research um and uh design consultancy and um they have identified yeah some serious exciting market dynamics on greece so greece being a series of islands largely kind of has a not very interconnected energy system and so there's a real potential to, to make those islands kind of a bit more self-sufficient. So the Greek Ministry of Environment and Energy announced a 700 megawatt tender for energy storage um, that's going to be issued this autumn with a procurement of about 200 million euros, uh, which is about 235 million US dollars um, in subsidies. There's also uh, nearly half a billion euros uh, going through to support uh, the installation of more than a gigawatt of energy storage uh, through the uh, EU-supported uh, recovery and resilience plan. So, yeah, some really exciting fundamentals in there. And, you know, I think we spoke on this pod before about how the US is racing ahead, um, but we've not really seen so much from... Um, from well from europe basically in terms of energy storage there's all kinds of condition regulatory conditions and whatnot sure. uh, europe largely has a great you know greater amount of interconnection so it's only when it gets to higher levels of renewables penetration that there'll be volatility on the grid that kind of requires um you know integration with flexibility of storage um, but yeah so there's flickers of life really uh, going there in energy storage and and to a lesser extent solar uh, in Germany and Greece, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's um it's quite an interesting landscape at the moment to see at all of the auctions which are coming to the fore in throughout Europe and and how they're being designed to in, in certain ways to almost like they are educating the results that they want to see. So I think one of the big things that we've seen with the UK contracts with difference auction, we we've now got the pot budget allocations for that um obviously the, the auction's coming in december a budget pot of a complete budget of 265 million pounds um 255 million pounds of which I, I believe is for um offshore wind and 10 million pounds of which is for so well on basically onshore renewables being solar and um onshore wind um so you can kind of gauge from that where the British government wants to see the bulk of that investment going. Um, it's quite interesting as well. Whereas the the pot two, which is the less established technologies, which um, offshore wind is a part of, there is no policy cap or no um, capacity cap rather. Um, so feasibly that could support an unlimited amount of 
um, offshore wind, whereas the onshore renewables cap is set at five gigawatts. So regardless of price, um, no more than five gigawatts could be allocated um, or supported by this coming auction. And uh, as well, no one technology could get more than 3.5 gigawatts. Um, So again, it's a policy and it's an auction and it, it should be celebrated, but it's questionable to see or to pair capacity caps with the budget allocations with the UK government's much vaunted ambition for net zero. Um, clearly, there needs to be something going on a lot quicker, a lot faster. Um, but equally, is also if just to take a look at um, the forthcoming auctions in Spain, which we're kind of looking forward to, obviously, so they're going to be a, a lot more popular um, in that part of Europe. Um, I thought it was quite interesting to see the way that the, the Spanish auction is going to um, have a carve out for projects which can be energized by next summer. Um, so energy renewable projects which can de- successfully deploy and be operational by next summer have their own kind of allocation. That is being billed um, as a potential remedy to some spike in power prices, which Spain have seen that in recent weeks, they've had some record power prices um, upwards of 130 euros per megawatt hour. Um, and Spain, the, the kind of Spanish government approach has been, we need to get more zero marginal cost renewables onto the system to help bring those power costs down. Um, and this is against a backdrop of an enormous amount of price and volatility, which we've seen on Europe. Um, throughout, uh, it's it's really difficult at, to kind of pin the blame for these prices on any one particular generation set or um, anything like that. It really is an amalgamation of different parts. Um, yes, wind speeds have been pretty low. Um, obviously, solar is coming towards the kind of end of its peak generation period, but equally, gas prices are through the roof at the moment. There's a lot of planned and unplanned maintenance on some thermal generation assets in Europe um, and nuclear as well. Um, and then this week we saw a fire break out at the IFA one um, interconnector between France and the UK, which has sent prices soaring even further. Um, there's been huge market imbalance prices. Um, so uh, elements like uh, the balancing mechanism have seen some pretty stark um, price spikes in the UK recently up to um I believe some of the market prices are up to around, uh, I think it was EPEX, had prices of three and a half to four thousand pounds per megawatt hour this week, just to illustrate. Um, this is around the evening peaks, just to illustrate just how tight the margins are at the moment. Um, and this is, we're not even in the, in the kind of deepest, darkest winter yet. So um, more of that's to come. Um, but interestingly, uh, we um, had a piece published on our PVTech premium service this week, uh, which really explored the market view that soda and storage is being widely regarded by market participants as the solution to elements of this kind of power spiking rather than any kind of eminent cause. So um, if you do read a piece, um, I have seen a view, I'm not going to mention them in particular, because uh, I don't think we need to be pointing towards that kind of rhetoric. But if you do see a piece which blames renewables or uh, weather-based energy generators are for these kind of power sp- um, price spikes, it's just not the case. Yeah, I mean, you know, I immediately think to some of the longer duration storage stuff that we've been looking at, you know, sure. that can store store energy for, for several days. And... Um, you know, I think we're. I think it's fair to say those most of those are some way away from commercialization. Um, you know, in terms of some of the technologies, they're starting to get mature, but they're not mature in a market sense. So we had, I think we talked about form energy before on this, uh, didn't we? Um, yeah. So form energy, their iron air battery, it's kind of designed for storing bulk energy in a battery that basically causes metal to rust and then unrust so some kind of some kind of crazy scientific uh, witchcraft going on there uh, with the uh, with the form energy guys <laughs> but yeah no, 
but no, so sorry. I mean, people far more serious than me have looked into it in more detail. And they, as I mentioned earlier, there's nearly uh, about half a billion of investment went into four uh, across four uh, energy storage companies, and Form Energy actually announced the close of a funding round uh, worth two hundred and forty million dollars. Um, and can I just run through the other three just really quickly? Sure. Yeah, so so it's really interesting to see that Form Energy are basically trying to solve a problem that everyone would thought was a little bit in the future. So, you know, needing three to five days of energy. But as you've just mentioned with the the stuff that's going on in Europe and the UK, uh, although at the moment it's expensive to buy these kind of battery solutions, uh, it would definitely be, you know, as you say, stor- solar and storage is the is one of the answers. And basically, the more you can generate power cheaply and shift it to when you need it most, I mean, it seems really obvious when you put it like that, doesn't it? Um, then, you know, you can solve a lot of these imbalances in the energy system. So another company that's trying to do that is called Enner Venue, and they got uh, about $100 million as well. Uh, Enner Venue are basically trying to commercialize a nickel-hydrogen-based battery uh, of the type used on the International Space Station and Hubble Space Telescope, uh, that they've said technological breakthroughs have made it possible to do that cheap enough to bring it down to earth. Well, hey, excuse the pun. Uh, also, uh, netting significant capital was Energy Vault. Again, $100 million in the last few weeks. Energy Vault, I've seen, I have to admit, I've seen some skepticism on. Um, yeah. But this is the company that I think, again, we've been talking about for a while. You know, these narratives that play out over time. Energy Vault is the company that's developed a form of gravity and kinetic energy-based storage, swinging, wait for it, 35 ton weights of concrete like material around using 120 meter high towers. I need to say 120 miles, that would be <laughs> insane, but yeah, 120 meters is still pretty impressive, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, an energy vault basically uses cheap electricity to lift these things up and then uh, lower and drop them. And then, yeah, sorry, so the last last company that I, uh, I've been speaking to actually, um is a technology system integrator. So they didn't invent uh, kind of a, um, you know, a long duration battery, but I figure I should mention them since they raised $150 million as a company called FlexGen, who actually started out as a microgrid technology provider uh, to folks like US military operations, um, you know, various remote sort of uh, microgrids of various kinds. And basically realized that there's a bit of a play to be made for the grid. Um, so, yeah, so really interesting stuff going on with them. I think if you can have a look on the site, the interview I did with their chief financial officer, Jan Brandt, who's a you know well-known solar industry guy, uh, sure. he's kind of, uh, you know, dabbling in, well, I don't know if he's dabbling, sorry, that's not fair at all, but he's now involved <laughs> with energy storage and CFO um, as, as, you know, as their CFO. Um, and, you know, so that was interesting to see them. They're kind of a system integrator, technology provider uh, kind of uh, kind of company. So, yeah, it's a really exciting stuff going on there um, across the, the energy storage space. Cool. I think um, that brings us very much towards the, uh, the end of the show. Um, just to give a bit of a glimpse at what we've coming up at Soda Media, um, we have our Intech conference, which starts... Um, on the 21st of September. So we're running virtual content across two sets of days. That's the 21st to the 22nd, kind of 28th to the 29th. Um, That is one of our uh, conferences, which looks more at the kind of tech side of the energy space, looking at how different technologies are evolving, how the grid operates. So hugely, hugely interesting. A lot of kind of cutting edge technology companies are participating in that this year. You can find more information at ntech which is en tech essentially dot solar energy events.com um harking back to what we discussed at the start of the show and this ever evolving and quickly changing policy landscape in the us we have our solar and storage finance usa event again also being held virtually this year um that's on the 6th to the 8th of october um you can find out more information on that event on finance usa dot solar energy events.com and lastly, to throw a bit of a future uh, 
gaze at what we have coming up on the publications. You can expect all the usual kind of news, insight, analysis across all of our portals. So PV Tech, Energy Storage News, Current and Solar Power Portal. Um, but we're also very much planning a lot of content around COP26 this year. Uh, we'll be present at the exhibition. Um, sorry, not much of an exhibition, the conference rather. Um, and covering it from all sides, I should say, but keep your eyes peeled across the sites for that. Andy, any more for any more, or are we done for this episode? Uh, yeah, we've kind of run out of time now, but yeah, I just wanted to mention that there's been, and I speak about it every uh, every episode, as it seems now, but <laughs> there's been a lot of stuff on flow batteries um, happening, uh, some huge things going on there. So keep again, keep watching that space both vanadium for the most part and also not vanadium to a lesser extent. Uh, but yeah, so start of construction's begun on a 500 megawatt hour project in China. Uh, so it'd be really interesting to see if that really, so that's nearly 10 times bigger than the uh, largest existing uh, vanadium flow battery project in the world at the moment. So there's been some great, uh, I was about to say some great stuff that I've written, but it's really not for me to say that. There's been some, some really exciting news that I've been greatly privileged to... Uh, I'm to sure you've added up. all the requisite colour to that story, Andy. I've done my best. I've done my best. <laughs> and obviously people can read that on energy-storage.news. They can, can't they, Andy? Say again? People can read that on energy-storage.news. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. I thought, I thought you were ending the podcast there. And I thought, that's, <laughs> odd. that's an odd note. <laughs> awesome. Well... Uh, that's what we have coming up. Um, and obviously you can keep abreast on across all of our channels and um, the podcast as well. Um, but nothing left for me to do today, but to thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye.